Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. finish chapter five because <laughs> um, Karina said what are you writing the talk on tonight I said chapter five she said haven't you been on chapter five for over a month I said yeah she's like you ha- it's time now to move things along <laughs> so I all this happens every time we study a text I get stuck somewhere and then there's wormholes and I can't get out of it um, so um, sh- or should we stop and and then, and then, so the, the, here's the plan. Next, next week, we're going to do the first paragraph of chapter six, which is amazing, which is the paragraph on patience, and it's the most famous chapter of Shanti Deva. And then, the week after, we're going to do the rest of the chapter on patience. The week after that, we're going to do the chapter on meditation. The week after that, we're going to do the ninth chapter on wisdom, and then we're going to be done. And I'm going to stick to that. Um, but next week, the way I'd like to work on the first paragraph of the patience chapter is I want to do so uh, as a group. Because I feel like I've been giving a lot of talks and we haven't had so much interaction. So uh, I want everybody to come next week um, because we're going to do some, some translating together around the, on the um, chapter on patience, the beginning of it it's a strange chapter because the punchline comes in the second line and then it goes downhill from there <laughs> um, Rose, are you and Anna supposed to talk tonight? Mm-hmm. yeah? Sh- should we just They're stop ready. and you guys can do that and then I'll continue? Okay. they're ready okay <laughs> hmm. We should just give you guys a night. (laughs) (laughs) Who's next week? To be announced. To be announced? Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
which accent to use right now. <laughs> Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Rose. So for those of you who are confused, um, Mike has been organizing for two people to introduce themselves every week. Uh, but they needed three weeks to prepare, so that's why we haven't had anyone for a Um, a few people commented last week about uh, just talking a little bit about meditation technique. So I just want to just go over what we talked about last week. Um, in meditation practice, um, I think it's really helpful to consider uh, two different realms. The realm of mindfulness and the realm of self-consciousness. And I think these two get really confused a lot of the time. Because if you can't distinguish between mindfulness practice and being self-conscious, then mindfulness actually can make you hyper-self-conscious. So um, somebody might say, it's uh, all the time I feel my emotions and I know that I'm thinking, and I see images, uh, so I'm aware. Isn't that mindfulness? Uh, and the answer is no, <laughs> because most of the time we see and we feel and we hear through the filter of self-consciousness. I'm feeling my knee, I'm feeling in a bad mood, I'm feeling happy, this is really great, they were nice to me today. They weren't nice to me today. Um, and it's all self-referential. And of course it's self-referential because you're a self. And it's not just from inside you. It's because of other people. All day, wherever I go, people say, Hi, Michael. How are you, Michael? It's nice to see you, Michael. So I start to feel like Michael. So then, when I go to look at what's moving through awareness... It belongs to Michael. And so the construction of a self is not just your fault. It also just happens because of relationship. So I think it's really important in meditation practice to check out as you're sitting if you're filtering the experience through self-consciousness or not. And when you are, to really catch that. So there's this realm of self-consciousness, there's this realm of mindfulness. And generally speaking, when we're practicing mindfulness, there's not much commentary happening. And if there is commentary happening, it's not being referred back to a sense of self. The way Dogen, a uh, 13th century Zen teacher, says it, is when you sit, just think not thinking which refers to an old koan that goes, how do you think not thinking? Not thinking. In other words, allowing for thinking, but thinking is happening in the space of not thinking. Thinking's not happening in the space of thinking. And then what starts to happen is you can distinguish between a process of allowing thoughts to happen in a much larger, more spacious place or space, rather than just this kind of self-reference. 
And this is a kind of radical standpoint, which is to experience your life uh, less from the standpoint of me. Nothing arises in your consciousness. Consciousness is just another experience. So really to be able to see this uh, in your practice, it's really important. So I just wanted to mention that because we went over this last week and still there there was a couple questions about it. I hope this makes sense a little bit to make make this distinction. Okay. So uh, I think this relates to what we've been talking about, which is this term bodhicitta. Uh, Bodhi means to be awake, and citta is usually translated as consciousness. Um, But I think citta is better understood as the part of your mind that is impressionable. So the part of your mind that's like wet clay. It takes impressions. Some of the impressions are erased very easily, and some of them hang around for a while. So uh, bodhicitta is this passion we have to be awake and to waken others that comes through a practice of caring for all sentient beings, so that it's an inspiration that really fills your heart. It's like catching the spirit of practice. And it implies compassion. And I think it's good to distinguish between absolute bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. Absolute love and relative love. Absolute love is love that's so big that there's no lover and there's no loving. There's just love. It's the nexus of every religion. If you're Jewish, if you're Christian, if you're Muslim, the center of your religious practice is this uh, 100% absolute bodhicitta, organic love. It's not local. Um, In 100% absolute bodhicitta love, Uh, Nothing can be lost. Everything gets held in that kind of love. The shadow of absolute love is that you end up in an ivory tower. I remember having this feeling when I was younger, uh, going to practice in a more monastic setting, and everybody who lived there was talking about how important it was to use this unconditional love. And I remember something just not sitting right with me. Because their perspective was, why choose one lover when you can just love all sentient beings? And that this is a much harder thing to do, is just to love everybody equally. And I remember thinking, are you joking? It's much harder to love one person or three people. So the shadow of absolute love is that you can end up in an ivory tower and you don't have to get your hands dirty. It's much harder to have conditional love. 
Or who invented the word unconditional love? Why even have conditions? Well, probably it was somebody who was trying to love one or two or three people. So uh, I think the path of unconditional love is really hard and really necessary and needs more lip service, I think, than just thinking about idealistic love. I experience a lot of absolute bodhicitta these days because I have two sons. One is the absolute son. He's four weeks old. The other is the conditioned son. He is nine years old. (laughs) Simone was holding my son the other day when he had a poo. This is the (laughs) four-week-old. And... It's, so I'm always holding him, but when Simone was holding him, I could see her face was matching all his poo faces. Because he's trying, he's like, trying to have a poo, you know? And then, I don't know if you remember this, he has a poo, and then he's just like... <laughs> his arms relax like this, and he just... And, he, and then for the next five minutes, he just stares at the ceiling. <laughs> and then if you look at Simone when she's holding him, she's also just like... So this is absolute bodhicitta because your body just totally meets the need of the other person. It's right there. It's like in the 90s, everyone's love for the phrase mirror neurons is a little bit like this. When we're kids, our parents can meet our needs. Even before they think about it, our parents just physically in their bodies are changing our diapers and getting the food together, and they're meeting uh, what we need. It's absolute bodhicitta. And then, as we're adults, we come to recognize that adult lovers are not going to meet our needs the way our parents did. And there's a gap between what we need and what somebody else can, can, how someone else can meet us. But maybe this happens too when we're kids. When we're kids, sometimes our parents are not paying really close attention to us, or they're not tuned in to what we need, or they're on their iPhone, and they they're not tuned in, and so we experience a scarcity where we're not actually being met. And then somehow we have to take care of that feeling of scarcity, and we have to somehow soothe ourselves. And I actually think in meditation practice, somewhere between self-consciousness and a real deep experience of the natural state of mind is actually your ability to soothe yourself your ability to monitor yourself. In psychoanalysis, it's called affect regulation. But then when we're adults, all of this comes back again. Maybe you had a parent that can't meet you, so that's your pattern, and you start choosing lovers who also can't meet you. So you can stay in the zone of scarcity. Has anybody been there before. I've heard about it. 
And then that brings us into conditional love. My other son, he's nine years old. So I want him to go uh, to a different camp. He always likes going to the same camp. So he said, I'm not going to a different camp. And I said, you are. (laughs) And then he said, you don't understand how I feel. So I said, I do actually. I understand how you feel. And he said, you don't understand how I feel. And then I thought to myself, what's he saying when, what is anybody saying when they say, you need to understand how I feel? Is somehow they're not feeling met? Because I don't know if we can ever completely understand how another person feels. So I said, well, I repeated back to him all the things that he was saying that he felt. And then at the end he said, that's your opinion. (laughs) (laughs) So then I realized, oh, here is a moment where our views differ and he experiences it as me not understanding how he feels, translated as, you don't agree with me. (laughs) And uh, somehow he has to learn how to take care of that. He has to learn how to take care of, oh, the needs aren't being met like that. So I think we all have to go through this over and over. It's what's so terrible about relationships. We have needs that the other person can't fulfill. And how do we manage that? How do we take care of that? Or we just project it all onto them and we're angry. So, um, relative bodhicitta and absolute bodhicitta, I think they depend on each other. You can't have one without the other. We have to work both spectrums. And then, I think real compassion is sustainable. If you just have one without the other, I think you're at a loss, always at a loss. So, let's hear from Shanti Deva and what he has to say. Uh, last week I was saying that I've been feeling, I've read so many translations now of this text, you have no idea, that I'm starting to feel that I actually just want my own translation. So last week I started retranslating chapter 5. So I'm going to just read a little bit of this translation, because uh, it's better. <laughs> And for those of you who've been studying the text, I left out all the sections about women because there's some really strange parts about, you know, not ever sitting with a woman unless her spouse is there, things like that. I just scrapped it. This is one thing I've learned from hanging out with Matthew Remsky, is that if you're reading an old text and there's something you don't like... You just scrap it. (laughs) And you you call it a remix. I call it a hack. So here's Shantideva, 2013. When I see or meet someone, I say to myself, this is line 80, through my meeting with you, I will wake up. With this internal slogan, 
I will meet each person with an open heart. Anyways, meeting each situation is my deepest aspiration. If I work in the field of loving others, great virtues will come about for all of us. Sometimes I love too much, and sometimes I can't meet others with my whole body. Sometimes I only meet others with memory. But that's not the kind of love that's possible. My capacity to love does not depend on anyone else, but it requires everyone else. Practicing generosity beyond generosity is instinctual. However, I need to continually attune myself to what's beneficial for others. Sometimes, to really help someone, I have to say or do things that seem questionable or don't meet a reified religious ethical code. Still, I carefully think this through because bodhisattvas think things through in the relative realm. Some people don't have enough food. Some people not enough protection. So I give away what I don't need and I take what I need to nourish life. My body is used for the Dharma because my body is a vehicle of the Dharma. My body holds love and love holds my body. For this reason, I should not take my own life. You should not either. You should consider how suicide will affect yourself and how suicide yours will affect others. It's not a sin to take your own life. Sometimes there's just no will to live. But even if you are in the worst pain, your body can be used in some beneficial way that you just can't see right now. If somebody is disrespectful, don't try to teach him or her. Also, don't explain the Dharma to somebody with a weapon. <laughs> it took a while to figure out the meaning of that. The Dharma is not something you explain. When I spit or throw away my dental stick, I should cover it up with earth. I should not urinate on land or water used by others. When eating, I will not overstuff myself. I will chew quietly. I should not give directions with one finger. Instead, I should point with my whole hand, with my fully stretched fingers, with my fingers fully outstretched. I will point directions with my whole arm. I don't need to wildly throw my arms around to make a point. If I need to accentuate or emphasize a word, I should snap my fingers. Mike? I like that. <laughs> Just as the Buddha lay down to die, when I go to sleep, I will lie down like that. And when I wake up, I'll make a firm decision to actually get up. I will always try and put my practice into practice. I will never abandon my friends. I will study texts for guidance. 
When I read a text and something penetrates me, I'll figure out how to put that into practice. Practice is action. Action born of practice guards the mind of my community. The defining characteristic of practice is examining again and again the condition of body and mind. And guarding mindfulness, I become alert and unrehearsed. How can I put this to work in my life without practice? How can you? For what can be achieved just by thinking? Will the sick receive benefit from merely reading the medical texts? So, there you go. So that's from line 80 to the, to the end. And I skipped anything that had women in it. Any comments before I keep going? Is there anything you heard there that needs unpacking or was confusing? Could you say the last line, please? Oh, what's the benefit uh, of reading? How did it go? Is it really nice? Yeah, that's really good. Um, Will the sick receive benefit from merely reading the medical texts? I actually don't think I retrain. I think that was straight out of Stephen Batchelor's translation. No comments, questions? Confusion? Yeah. I have a question about the index fingers thing. Yeah. What, what Isn't is that, that interesting? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but, but it's interesting because in a lot of places where I've traveled in Asia... Nobody ever points their finger. Yeah. If you ask for directions, it's like this. In Japan, it's like this. So, um, I don't know, maybe we should try that and see what kind of difference it makes in your body, how it feels. Let me know. Um... Hema Chodron is incredible at summing things up. She sums this up and offers three practices called three trainings for three difficulties. Here's how it goes. Number one, to recognize your neurosis as a neurosis. That's good. To recognize your neurosis as a neurosis. Number two, then not to do the habitual thing, but to do something different to interrupt the neurotic habit. So simple, right? Recognize the neurosis, then don't do the habitual thing. You don't have to keep being the same person. Number three, make this practice a way of life. Make this practice a way of life. So I wanted to tell a little story about this. Um, some of you know that I love Zen koans. Uh, I don't really teach koans so much to people. It, I'm, I still practice them myself. Um, but I really 
love taking these koans and treating them as parables, as stories that we can all, all learn from. And um, th- this one I thought about just in relationship to what it means to practice in a way where bodhicitta is right there, as spontaneity, as presence, as not self-consciousness. So here's how the story goes. Uh, There was a student named Elder Ting. When you hear that someone's name is Elder Ting, how old do you think they are? Can you picture them? Okay. So so there's two people. There's Elder Ting and there's Lin Chi. Some of you might know Lin Chi is also known as Rinzai, who is the founder of the Rinzai Zen School. Heavy-duty master. And this elder student. Elder Ting asks Lin Chi, Master, what is the great meaning of the Buddha's teachings? Lin Chi gets down from his seat and slaps Ting and pushes him away. Ting is stunned and just stands there motionless. Then, a monk nearby came up to Elder Ting and said, Elder Ting, why don't you bow? And Elder Ting bows and realizes great enlightenment. Should we go through that again? There's Elder Ting and Lin Chi. So, Elder Ting says to Lin Chi, Master, what is the great meaning of the Buddha's teaching? Can you picture this? By this old man saying, what's the great meaning of the Buddha's teaching? If somebody asked me that question, and I'm no master, I would roll my eyes, probably. Especially if they've been here for a while. What's the great meaning of the Buddha's teaching? Um, Lin Chi gets down from his seat, I should do this sometime, and <laughs> slaps Ting and pushes him away. And Ting is stunned and just freezes, stands there motionless. And then the monk closest to him comes up and says, Elder Ting, why don't you bow? And Elder Ting bows and has a great awakening. I love this story. This story is a familiar trope, the beginning of it anyways, which is there's a seeker and they're asking a question, but it's an intellectual question. There's no vulnerability in the asking of the question. And so, Elder Ting asked this question with no heart in it. What's the great meaning of the Buddha's teaching? It's not about his life. So, anything that Lin Chi says to him is just adding more to nothing. In Zen, it's called having a conversation in the weeds. Just talking more about talking. So what could he add? So he slaps him. He slapped. You know, I think we all interpret this as, oh my God, he slaps him. I've been slapped in interviews before. And it's not a slap that's like a violent slap. It's a slap like it's an immediate response which is basically getting you to just just wake up and rethink what just happened. But 
Often in Zen stories, for those of you who know a lot of koans, usually someone gets slapped and then they have an awakening. But that's not what happens in this story. In this story, he gets slapped and then he just stands there, motionless, <laughs> like he's just totally frozen. And then a monk comes up to him and says, Elder Ting, why don't you bow? And he bows and experiences a great awakening. And I like this because he doesn't experience something until his whole body does it. His whole body gets into the bow. And then he experiences this. This is bodhicitta. His whole body is doing it. It's not self-consciousness. The self-consciousness is, oh, I was just hit. How do I look in front of the group? Or, shit, I should have asked a different question. (laughs) And the other thing about this story that I really love is... The student is asking a question with something he doesn't have. So, Elder Ting is asking an abstract question. It's not something in his body. And Lin Chi hits him because Lin Chi responds with the closest thing that he has at hand, which is his hand. So, it's immediate. Immediate. So I thought of this koan a lot while I was reading this chapter because I think it captures what's meant by bodhicitta. That bodhicitta is not just a sentiment. It's not just like a philosophical way of looking at things. You hear this a lot these days, you know, this term interdependence. You know, that the main teaching of the Buddha was interdependence. But that wasn't the main teaching of the Buddha. The main teaching of the Buddha is interdependence through non-attachment. Interdependence as you don't hold on to anything. It's not interdependence as a philosophical framework, like recycling. It's interdependence that comes out of not holding on to anything. And out of that space comes love. But love doesn't come out of that space if it's a space of self-consciousness, if it's filled with mind. Um, I just want to uh, read the footnote here. This, this koan comes out of a text you should all have called the Blue Cliff Record. And the Blue Cliff Record is a text that where there's a hundred, a hundred koans. And then all the koans have extensive footnotes, which are all the questions the teachers ask the students after they realize the koan, just to test them on the koan. So the way it works is, usually you get a koan, you you are asked by the teacher to show the koan, and then you're so high, because some of you have this experience where you kind of get it, you get it. And then the teacher tests you and asks you a a slight variation of the koan, and then usually you freeze up again. You're just not there, because you've identified 
And there's really good lessons in those questions that come later because um, you get something and then you see the holding on right away. And then the teacher comes in and asks you another question. And then if you freeze, then that's your next koan. But it's not really the next koan. It's still just working through the footnotes. And you can read all of this in the Blue Cliff Record. None of it will help you. <laughs> but it's, it's, really, it's really good to read. And the Blue Cliff Record, by the way, too, is just all the koans in there are all stories from... The, the, it's a Japanese collection, but they're all old stories from Chinese uh, characters. Chinese stories, Chinese parables. Anyways, the footnote. Here's what the footnote says. When someone dies in the eastern house, the people in the western house helps them mourn. When someone dies in the eastern house, the people in the western house help them mourn. So in Zen, when someone dies, it doesn't necessarily mean someone dies. It means someone's really let go. They can't go on anymore with this version of themselves. And so they're going to let go. Has anybody had this experience in their, in their life? <clears throat> Though, you know, Shantideva is talking about suicide. And this is so much of what suicide is. And somebody saying, I can't go on anymore. And the job is to be able to hear that and really hear it. That this part of this person that's presenting themselves right now can't go on anymore. Has to die. And so the question is, how do you meet them in a way where that part of them can start to be seen and to die without that becoming literal? It's the job of a therapist. And usually where therapy goes all wrong around suicide is the therapist is so scared of that person dying. And there's so much research around, you know, the legality is so complicated when you're a therapist, when somebody wants to take their own life. You have to do something called a contract for safety. And there's a lot of research around contract for safety actually really isn't helping because what it does is it's, it's taking the energy of this person who wants to die and it's just totally literalizing it. It's not picking up on that there's something in this person that wants to die and has to come out in the relationship with this person. So when someone dies in the Eastern house, somebody in the Western house comes more. So maybe that's just one person. One part of us has to die, and the other part of us has to mourn that. One part of us gets frozen. Elder Ting freezes up, totally misses the teaching. And then the person in the western house next to them comes in. Why don't you just bow? You just got a really good teaching, but you missed it. So just bow. And then when he bows, he gets it. 
letting go of the narrow self, <clears throat> that narrow sense of self, the self-consciousness. Just bow. So at center of gravity, when we come in the door in this room, we bow. And when we leave, we bow. When you come to your cushion, you bow to your cushion. And then you turn around and you bow to the sangha. Some of you who are new, uh, you might be getting used to this. Um, Maybe next week we'll spend more time on how to bow. But the bowing is really good when you put your whole body into it. You fully bow. So... The last thing about this koan that I really like is that Ting doesn't know why he bowed. He was just told to bow. He didn't stop and say, oh, I don't know. This might be cultural appropriation. He didn't stop and say, what's the meaning of bowing? Although that would be a good koan. You'd probably get hit again. Um He bowed because it was suggested. And in the suggestion of the bow, something happened. So so much of what I've gained from practice has not been because I found the meaning of something. I found the meaning of why you hold your hands like this. That's not what I've gained in practice. I gain in practice because I put my whole heart into something. It's like that whenever you learn a practice. You can be in the technique and learn about the meaning or the history of a technique or the history of a form. But really, that doesn't wake you up. What wakes you up is when you can put your whole heart into it. Now I have so little time because I have two boys. Does anybody here have two children? It's like, how do you do anything? I I didn't bathe for days. (laughs) So now when I sit, I'm really having to to refine what my technique is because I have to be more efficient. When I sit, I want to sit and really be practicing. So I realize I have to put my whole heart into it. And then the baby starts crying, I have to get up. And so when I get up, I have to put my whole heart into it. I'm right there with him. If I go and meet the baby and I'm thinking to myself, oh, fuck. I really wanted to just be in samadhi, man. (laughs) You had to poop. (laughs) Couldn't you wait? (laughs) Couldn't you soothe yourself? (laughs) I've been posting pictures on Facebook of all the different things you can do with your kid while you meditate. Has anybody seen me? I'm, I'm going to create a whole series. Because so many people say, oh, I can't sit, I'm so busy with my children. So I decided I'm going to show all the ways you can wrap up your little baby so that they can sit with you. Even if you have to sit and vibrate a little Any comments or questions before we wrap up?
good to have a couple comments or questions before. Of course, you uh, elaborate on the line regarding uh, some disrespected, fully disrespected. I can't remember exactly what uh, the word of the wording was. Which part? That part, don't teach someone who disrespects yes. me. If someone is disrespectful, don't try to teach him or her. And don't explain the Dharma to someone with a weapon. <laughs> the Dharma is not something you explain. Does somebody want to try? If someone is disrespectful, don't try to teach him or her. I don't think it's necessarily directed towards you being disrespectful, just in the mindset the space of What part of the question kind of? Well, I mean, I, I, I tend to, when I feel disrespected, my first instinct is to try to uh, stand up for my myself, to, oh. to show that person that, you know, that they, they shouldn't have just disrespected me. So it's interesting. I mean, I think the. the the way I think that the more uh, the right way to approach it is not to actually uh, react mm-hmm. to try to uh, teach that person any lesson but I think I find that it's it's hard enough to actually uh, yeah. hold yourself back uh-huh. yeah I mean we might be reading into it a little bit just because his audience was about 5,000 monks at a massive at Nalanda, a massive Buddhist university, and he was giving a lecture. So he might literally be talking about teaching the Dharma. And for those of you that are monks that are teaching, don't teach people who are disrespectful because they can't hear it. That's the feeling I got when I was looking at different translations. Yeah, that really changes the meaning of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. But that's interesting to think about what happens when someone's being disrespectful. How do you respond? Yeah, because yeah. I think that comes up a lot in the patient's chapter. In the patient's chapter. Because the idea of, um, the idea, I think like uh, you were saying, sorry, here about the, about the, the mindset of the, the attitude. When somebody's disrespectful, we have immediate association as to what is disrespectful and where that's coming from. But there's an there's a, um, an impatience or an aggressiveness to immediately respond to that when we actually don't know a lot of the context, and we're not allowing to be in, impacted in a sense by what we're being given, whether we like it or not. We are being given something. Mm-hmm. so. Um, the, uh, 
that cause as opposed to the reactivity is um, uh, is a place for patience. It's interesting too because that that section also comes right before he starts talking about don't throw away your dental stick, uh, you know, and if you know, cover something you've thrown away. If you spit, cover it over with dirt. You know, don't just pee anywhere. So he then flips it and says, and you should be respectful. And here's how you can do it. Um, Bearing in mind I don't want to be hit in the face, um, what what would, you said before, um, about the weapons comment that you have your own interpretation of it, and I'm really curious because I'm, I'm lost on that. My own interpretation of the weapons? Um, the yeah. weapon, there was a comment, just uh, like the line before that. The line before that. What's that? I'm lost. Oh, yeah. Well, don't, yeah. I mean, so on one level, and again, if you think about the context, you know, monks are not allowed to have weapons. A monk cannot carry a stick. Cannot. That's why it was so powerful in Burma when those thousands of monks um, um, marched against the military because a monk is not allowed to fight and not allowed to have a weapon. It's really powerful. Um, so that's one side. And the other side is, if someone does have a weapon, don't teach them dharma. And so the flip side is, you can't carry a weapon, so you are teaching them dharma. And the literal side is, you know, if someone's got a gun, that's not the time to start teaching them. <laughs> goes both ways. Or maybe it is, yeah. We can really debate about this. Andre, you... Well, I was just thinking about um, uh, some Japanese anecdote about Zen Master speaking to a swordsman. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, I just can't remember the exact anecdote now, but um the swordsman raised his sword and was about to kill him, and he says, uh, there opens the gates of hell. But I guess the, the point I'm just thinking is that he was, in fact, engaging with someone who had a weapon. Yeah. And wasn't Zen training part of some military forms? All mixed up with military forms. 